Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. You're joined with me, your host, Rohan Ulachima, on the Saturday morning live show. We will also be joined by shortly by Hamad Khan and Nasheed Zafar as well. As you know, on the Saturday morning live show, we normally discuss various issues pertaining to the news and uh, what is happening around us, and we give our personal opinions on how those affect us and uh, what we perceive um, of those different news as well. And today we will also be doing the same, and some of the topics that we are planning to cover today include the GCSE and A-level results, which we is, I feel like, a yearly uh, show or talk that we do. And uh, we will discuss those, which took place over the last two weeks, the results that have come out, and uh, go further into the need for higher education and have a discussion on that as well, hopefully. We will also be discussing the Lucy Letby case, which um, has been quite popular in the news um, for a while now. And it's in regards to the nurse who committed some heinous crimes um, where she was purposefully um, murdering small babies um, at the hospital in a capacity as a nurse. And uh, she got away with this for a very, very long time. But uh, finally, she was caught and also has been um, charged now. Apart from this, we will also be discussing a rather peculiar story that I thought, and uh, it was very bizarre and almost movie-like, I can say, which is the British Museum robberies. And I know the latest news I saw yesterday was that the director or the head of the British Museum has resigned over this rob- the robberies as well. So it seems to be a very confusing time for them there. And we want to touch on the Donald Trump indictment, which... Um, also very interesting, something like a year or two ago we thought would not happen, um, but I'm pretty sure a lot of you have seen now the mugshot <laughs> that's been posted online. I think there's been a lot of um, talk around that as well. Some people are um, making a joke out of it, but I also think this is something which um, is very important to discuss as well, similar to how we're seeing in other countries as well where ex-leaders, so people who were running the country not too long ago, are being indicted or imprisoned um, shortly after the tenure by the new leadership and the new government. And finally, we will then go on to discuss about 
a new bill that's been passed in Denmark on regards to the Quran burnings, uh, a ban on the Quran burnings. And the reason we want to discuss this is because we have previously spoken in detail and a lot about this topic. Not necessarily about uh, the Quran burning itself, but in regards to freedom of speech and expression across different walks of life, whether that's in regards to religious matters or secular, um, economic, political matters. And where is the limit where it comes to expressing yourself and when does expression turn into insult? So I think this is a good discussion for us to have again today um, to see where we are. As I mentioned, we will be joined by Hamad Khan and Noshi Zafar in the office as well. The office, I should say, the studio. Um, and uh, we will just start today by talking about our GCSE results. And overall, I think the um, perceptions so far have been pretty mixed. Uh, I think one thing that's always uh, good to see is uh, people's reaction on social media. Uh, you have your ups, your downs. You also have a lot of parents always sharing their children's results as well, which is very nice and heartwarming to see. Uh, very supportive people. Uh, and one person that always likes to give a message of support to people is Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, as you all probably famously know, uh, he likes to tweet out, uh, I think, every A-level results today, his own results, which I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But uh, the point he's trying to make is that he did not receive uh, good A-level results, according to him. And uh, he says that, oh, look, these are my results, so you don't need to worry. I now run a farm. He says he'll make a joke like that. And uh, every year without fail, he, he does so. So that, that, that really gets picked up a lot. So for GCSE results, um, we knew that during COVID, we had a rise in grades and uh, there was a discussion around um, due to the pandemic um, there was ease um, provided for students in regards to how they're taking their exams and uh, in regards to their ability to be able to learn everything so exams should be tailored in a way where they're not having to overburden themselves and also the way they're marked should also be in a sense lenient so during COVID we saw results or results that students have received increase quite a bit. But since the last two years, we've had a decrease or um, a reduction in pass rates. Compared to last year, we've reduced a bit more as well for a second year running. So what we know is that 68.2% of all grades marked at grades four and above. Four is a C, which is a pass rate now. So 68.2% of all grades have been passed. Uh, the fall in passes uh, is due to England's plan to bring grades back down, like I mentioned, um, where we've had top results during COVID itself. Do, uh, and this applies to Wales, England and Northern Ireland. Um, so the grades have dropped steeply between, let's say, pre-pandemic, so 2019, uh, compared to then to 2022. And uh, ministers are saying we're getting back to normal in England, which will ensure that GCSEs have weight and credibility with employers. So this is a discussion we want to have separately later on as well, that uh, if GCSEs in over the last two years were made in a way where um, for the benefit of the students and to not overburden them, then can they truly be a marker or a guideline for their future capabilities and the knowledge that they have gained to then be used later on? And 
we know that some of the top headlines we have been seeing is that overall 26.5% of this year's GCSE grades in England were marked at 7, meaning an A or above. But the regional divide is growing still. And we have to remember we discussed the regional divide last year as well, where we've compared the grades in our hub, our capital, the London and uh, to let's say up north so for example if i if i give you the stats for this as well is that in london the people who uh, attained uh, seven or like i said at a in the subjects was 28.4 percent while in the northeast it was more than 10 percent less than this it was only 17.6 percent uh, so northeast actually in general as well across the country has seen the lowest uh, proportion of top grades and Education Secretary Gillian Keegan defended the government's record on narrowing the attainment gap between disadvantaged pupils and others, but said things have taken a step back since COVID, like I mentioned. And as a, not, well, in case you're wondering, <laughs> I, I did not want to leave out Scotland. We know that Scotland do not do GCSEs, but they did receive their SQA results earlier this month as well. Some other points. Um we've been able to pick up on as well sorry guys we've just had Noshe join us in the studio as well <laughs> so yeah so we've just been discussing on results day so I've been going through some of the statistics we've had for results day so far for GCSEs in particular and I was mentioning that we've seen a drop for the second year in a row now when it comes to overall pass grades um, compared to what we had over the two years during the pandemic. And the reason for that is we've had minister mention that, ministers mention that they want to bring back the credibility when it comes to GCSE results. So they do hold more weight when it comes to future higher education and also job prospects and stuff like that. Um, and I remember we, we discussed this every single year as well. And during COVID, we picked up on both of these things as well. Our results have um, decreased during COVID. And I think we're kind of back back the same back to normality in that sense as well yeah but is normality good right because normality if if this is the normal it's a bit sad isn't it because should someone's prospects on life be determined by how wealthy their parents were or which neighborhood they lived in of course it shouldn't and we know in reality that's not the case but to see that gap between the well-off and the not so well-off actually getting bigger is is a little bit disheartening because actually if we think about it there are so many people who might come from working class backgrounds living in poorer neighborhoods who've got fantastic potential they could go on to do wonderful great things in their lives if only they're given the chance to do so um, and surely it's a it's a black mark on on society if we're not enabling those people and giving them those opportunities because ultimately it's all of us that benefit when someone goes on to become a doctor or or someone who goes to achieve some scientific achievement or whatever that that achievement for that person is right ultimately it's everyone who would benefit from it yeah and i think i think uh, even the statistics are pretty clear on this so I can't, we can't necessarily say in terms of privilege and underprivileged but if we look at the divide between the grades, uh, let's say in the capital, London, compared to all the areas outside, so we say, um, they mentioned that um, the pass grades, if we compare London to, let's say, northeast region, northeast region has received on average the lowest results in the country, um, and there's a 10% difference between students that have passed 
in London compared to Northeast, which is quite a lot. So that yeah. gap has increased their mentioning as well. So London yeah, exactly. is performing better than the other schools. And and you'll see the same thing in London as well. If you take the poorest neighbourhoods in London, which I believe is Tower Hamlets, and you take the wealthiest neighbourhoods, which is somewhere in Kensington or Chelsea, right? Again, mm. you will see probably a night and day difference between outcomes for these people. Again, I think it's not just purely schooling it's also the other pressures of life right as in that perhaps some studies don't take into account so for example wealthier parents might be able to afford tuition they might be able to afford childcare, so that while they work the children are still taken care of whereas in less well-off households older children in particular might be responsible for taking care of their siblings or they might have to go out and help their parents with things like the groceries because they can't have they can't pay someone else to do it for them. So you see there's a lot of time-based activities that the wealthy are able to almost buy their time back which ultimately benefits the students but also in terms of if we were to have a a wider conversation another time perhaps on things like health outcomes and and sort of expected life expectancies that sort of thing again you'll always find typically those in wealthier neighborhoods those from wealthier backgrounds tend to have more favorable outcomes well i mean i'll just jump in if i can guys that that's an indictment of partly the education system and the governance of it because you know yes you've talked about you know education being a social mobility but even actually now one of the questions that came to my head when i was listening to this news story is is it even worth it of even going into higher education are people seeing that benefit there i I don't know whether you saw medicine got into clearing from top universities this Mm. year which is quite extraordinary and i don't blame it medicine is one of the professions that i I can say publicly it's going to be devalued incredibly in the next three years, you know, at the very least. The way that you've got students who have the highest potential, who have the, you know, highest academic um, remit, they also also come from quite rather privileged backgrounds. And so they recognise that there is no financial incentive to stay in the health service, the civil service sector, whatever it is. It's not just medicine related. And so what you're seeing is people pivoting into more private jobs, finance jobs, consulting jobs. And you've got the other students who are perhaps still enchanted by the idea of social mobility and the prospects of having an occupation rather than just a day-to-day job and having an established career. And yet you're still not going to get the benefits of that. But just to stick to education, Education, I, I, I think I think it peters back into you know Noshi, you were saying that you know when you're more rich you can buy back your time, but I it's almost like it's it's not the, on the household. I don't think it's the blame or the responsibility or guilt. And I know you weren't saying that either of either the parents or even the children or even the schooling. We talk about the ten percent difference between the north and south. That's disparities across the sector, whether it's housing, education, or whatever it is. This vast underfunding in the north. It's governance. It's completely and utterly governance. Exactly, because that's not at all to criticise those who've got the means to do so. I mm. think any parent, any family, any household would do those things to buy back their time if they've got the means. Of course they would, right? Who mm. doesn't want to spend more time or doing leisure things like whatever you enjoy, whether it's going out for a walk, cooking, whatever it might be, right? As in, if you can buy back time to do the things you enjoy doing, of course you're going to do it. And like, like you mentioned, Hamad, it's like the, there will always be disparities in any service, in any sort of public-based outcome type thing um, you, unfortunately you just cannot get a completely consistent outcome nationally like you say there will always be pockets where some people are doing a little bit better some people are doing a little less well off um, but but you're right absolutely it's it's uh, failure is a bit of a strong word but I think it's probably probably 
useful here, but it is a failure of of fairness and equity. Is mm. we're not talking about equality. Equality is giving everyone the same thing, but no, not everyone needs the same thing here. Equity is about making the starting position for everyone fair so that they can have similar outcomes in life. It's a bit like, uh, Hamad, you might have seen this. There was a graphic of uh, three people trying to watch the football match. There's yeah. a, a child, a teenager and an adult. If you give all of them one box, the small child who's the shortest still can't see over the fence, yeah. right? So equity is really more about actually giving the handicap to those who, who need it, i.e. providing them with the extra assistance and those who don't need it, well then leave them be. It's proportional and outcome based, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm going to p- p- pivot just on the concept of grades and education that, that we were talking about. Just just a personal question, how well do you think your grades have served you? You know, coming out of higher education, you know, actually both of you are, are in jobs, are in the job market, you just you know, finished a lot yeah. of education recent graduates. Do you think it's open doors? Do you think it's only facilitated conversations? Or do you think there's something there? Because there's this other thing, talking about devaluing higher education, it's the concept of apprenticeships. And I think, I'm I'm going to double fact, fact check myself in a couple of minutes, but I'm pretty sure it was a secretary uh, of education in this country said that actually, you know, students should be looking into apprenticeships. It, and she, she sort of disparaged the concept of going into university, saying that you're almost f- foolish, which is quite extraordinary to say in that position, I, th- I think. Yeah, so great question. I personally don't use my degree in my, my lo- line of work. I studied mechanical engineering. I work in, in IT consulting now, Yeah. right? So there, there's literally no link between the, what I studied and what I do. However, I don't think I would have got that job um, without having had a degree of some sort, yeah. Because um, technically, I did join on a graduate scheme. Um, so, in 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 some ways, I could say it has served me well. But in other ways, no, you're right. It's it's not necessarily entirely useful. I think it really comes down to, and I think we mention this every time we we're on this topic of education. There are certain fields, medicine, law, etc., where absolutely you need to be educated and qualified in your field to practice those things because it is of importance. Mm. Do you know what? For the majority of us, having just a degree of any sort kind of proves your intent and ability to soak up knowledge. Yeah. Um, but with the, with the apprenticeships coming through, I think there's a great opportunity there for, for many young people as well. And, and obviously, you don't get incumbent with with thousands of pounds of debt. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's been the case for me as well. And I've, always, I've worked in sectors which are related to engineering so far. And within those sectors, apprenticeships are a big deal where companies are creating new avenues and encouraging apprentices to come in. So you'll have three, four times more apprentices than grads coming in to a company easily, even more than that now. And uh, the benefit that they have from this is that they'll take them from a young age, so even straight after GCSEs or A-levels. And uh, they go through education, training, work, all at the same time. Obviously, you don't have to pay them as much initially. So first couple of years, they'll be under 20K. And uh, they develop that as they go along. And you've already got a person by the next three years who understands the company better, who can do a lot of different works across different sectors in the company, mm. better than the grad. Mm. That's and a great point, actually, because I'm, I'm two years in now, and I've understood a lot of the politics, a lot of the mechanisms where, where I work. But, but you're absolutely right. Someone who, But it's taken me two years to learn it, whereas mm. if you've got an apprentice, someone who's in training but also learning, right, 
they they understand your business and they're far more valuable three years in in some ways than, than a grad might be it's mm. that unspoken corporate culture teaching that they get from being in that environment i guess yeah it's interesting because they they're bringing this model again on the concept of widening access to education and improving education outcomes they're now even incorporating apprenticeships for medicine so medicine historically being considered a vocation and academically um competitive uh, you know realm of studying is now you know why don't we get students who do three or four days a week in hospital and one day of um weeks worth of teaching um at, at university it's extra it's being heralded as innovative and extraordinary and incorporating you know uh, breaking down barriers and widening um access to me- um, medicine again to me I, i'm always this cynic and i have reasons to be cynical but it's fast track the training of doctors and then what do you have you have doctors who have perhaps a different degree because we don't necessarily know whether apprenticeship is similar or whether you can even class it as similar and then you have an entire generation of health professionals who will perhaps have to be bound to this health service um, whilst we're seeing at the same time that a lot of them are now because of financial unsustainability yeah and i think it's worth also discussing we talked about social mobility, right? In particular, children and, and young adults coming in into the workforce and obviously into higher education before that from less affluent backgrounds. Mm. Their primary goal ultimately in many cases is going to be, I want to live a better life than what I've been able to live so far, right? Yeah. In the sense, not everyone is born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So they're like, okay, because let's be real, we've all been taught you go to, to school, you get your GCSEs, your A-levels, you go to university, you, you pick up a degree from there, and then supposedly the world is your oyster. I think that's a little bit far-fetched for a lot of people, and I don't necessarily want to come raining down on, on people with aspirations. Like three that's, stars, and they're like, what does this mean? No, no, of course not. As in, it's not a case of the world's terrible. It's far from it, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows like sometimes we've been promised it will be. No, I I don't think even if I think of my experiences and like my jobs and everything that I've gotten, it's always been through the back door. It's always been through conversations, predominant being it being right place, right time. And yeah, you could say I've been educated to the degree where I can impress other people, whether that's through talks and conversations, whatever else. And you need that. Right. Um do I think that it's three years worth, £27,000 debt mm. worth of conversation? I, I, I'm i not too sure. I've always felt, even in my interviews that I've done, and I've done quite a bit, <laughs> that they've valued my six weeks of internship more than my three or four year degree. And could you get that internship, do you reckon, without any of your the background? The internship was not narrated to my subject itself, but uh-huh. it was more the skills I learned through the internship. I'll be honest, I got my job, and I'm, I don't think my boss will ever tell me directly, but... I'm very certain I got it because of a couple of courses I did after I finished my degree, which yeah. I had a family friend who, who was able to provide them to me. Um, mm. But had I had to pay for them, they would have cost me about £6,000, right? But wow. the thing being, compared to the cost of a degree, that's still nothing, right? Yeah. Um, so it's all about finding the right skills and, and sort of obviously conversing and networking with the right people. And I think that mm. helps a long way as well. So. Of course, I think we've talked about it pretty much every time we talk about education, but higher education in particular is not for everyone. I think we've got this, we've got this social idea that, oh no, everyone should go to university. But I'll put it to you this way, from something I read a few years ago, apparently only 15% of students will actually go on to university, Wow! right? From, from school, right? And then out of that 15%, 
only a third of those will actually graduate. So what does that mean? That means only 5% of the population supposedly has degrees. So as you can see, so supposedly that's one in 20 people that will have a degree, right? So as you can see, people like the three of us, we are in the minority here. That's extraordinary. But it's, yeah. it's very, very interesting how we, we, everyone who's got a degree thinks, wait, isn't this what everyone does? I'll, I'll, I'll be, I have my own bias. I, 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 don't, I, I, can't, I can't even fathom people who don't have degrees because I, I, I don't know what I would do with my time. And I think that's even just indoctrination of academic validation, get validated, be recognized with, with, with your degree. But also then, I guess you don't have to have an academic job. You can have no, I, I, I actually started realizing this more at the workplace where one of the places that I worked was my manager who'd been at the company for 20 years had joined an apprenticeship and now he was at the uh, kind of the role where you'd see a lot of the people came on graduate schemes or came with degrees mm. and again it was just that experience that he had throughout the company exactly I've, well. I've got senior colleagues now sort of obviously I guess you could say they're of an age where they're roughly of my parents generation I, and I guess things were a bit different then um, but but he, he joined work without any degrees as well and again it was just a case of doing a job picking up some skills moving into something else and just slowly he sort of snowballed it up into his current role Mm. um so it is interesting isn't it? every time we talk education we just think this is the only proper way to get into the workforce and and hopefully have a better life but actually i think for the vast majority of people there are many many other options out there as well yeah the only difference is the avenues absolutely post education so obviously graduate schemes as we're discussing they want to see your degree and they also ask for what grade you got a lot of the times as well, two, 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 one. But uh, when you go to universities, you're told that's the only way you're going to get a job to go yeah. through graduate well, it's schemes. It's a business model, true. isn't it? Which, which is, is true. But were you, uh, when you were at school, particularly in the sixth form, were you very much pushed towards by your by like your school counsellors and whatnot that higher education is the way forward? And well, if you've been, particularly if I think. The three of us, by by the grace of God, think we were fairly astute at school, right? So especially for for students like ourselves being told you have to go to university because this is your path. No, this is true. I I think it's more subtle than that. I I don't think there's a point where it's like, oh, you meet your school counsellor. It's indoctrination. There's that culture of you're in year seven and year eight, year nine, year ten, you're in top set, you're doing good grades and then, oh, you have to worry about your GCSEs. Okay, let me worry about my GCSEs. Oh, now I have to worry about my A-levels. And oh, how many people got into Oxford, Cambridge? Oh, none of them did. Oh, I need to get into it. So it's learning by example of the older years in front of you and no one's telling you. I remember actually... I there was a few people who didn't apply to university and I could I could see how isolating that experience was everyone's doing their UCAS application at the same time and then you know um, and there's very little support to no support so there is a, something there about trying to support and encourage people to just actualize their own idea of life that isn't necessarily yeah. stringent on one particular avenue but the thing is right as in we know for a fact that 19 out of 20 people are not living on the streets, right? Unfortunately, there are still far too many people living in destitution, but it's not 95% of people, i.e. those who don't go to university, right? I'll give you an example. Some Someone I went to school with, he he didn't go to university, but he runs his own business. And I think it's going quite well for him. He runs a cafe in West London, right? Um I feel like there are things that people who don't go into higher education are willing to take risks on. I, for example, would have just thought, oh, God, where am I going to get the money from? And what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? But again, that also perhaps is down to my nature and partly why I became an engineer. We are very risk averse, right? Um, Whereas this person, he he didn't want to go into higher education and he thought, I want to do something I'm more interested in. He ran a couple of jobs and then ultimately he's like, actually, I want to start my business. And he's done that. 
But if we look at that, I think in in a lot of cases you look at people who are successful successful in business. A lot of them haven't gone to university. A lot of them haven't followed that more traditional path of get your education and then sort of climb the corporate ladder. I think ultimately what we're touching on here, maybe just to finish it on here, is like how do you know the path that you choose or the path that's been closed upon you and now you're in a situation if you have bad grades or whatever else it is, is is, is the right path for you or you know, do you see it through as a sustainable path? I, I had advice given to me by someone who said, don't worry about the money, it's what you're passionate about, it's what you see because then the money will follow. Mm. I... I struggle with that advice. Uh, yeah, you guys don't like that advice either. <laughs> um, I, I, I've, I've chosen that advice. And even now, I'm just like, well, bloody hell. I, you, know, you need some sort of sustainability uh, at the end of it. Um, but I, I, I think there is some truth in that either way, you're going to be in some sort of life and routine where you have to earn money. So, you know, f- figure out whether you want to do it in a way that's meaningful to you or whether you just think it's a means to an end and that end is a better life, like you said. Yeah. Nothing. You make a good point there in terms about work having meaning or, or following your passions, right? I've got a good friend. When when we were in the sixth form, he, he used to tell me I want to be a professional footballer. But he even then, he was like, it's probably not realistic. I, I probably won't get to the point where I'm making huge money just from following my passion and playing playing the game. He's like, and even then, he realised something. And to be fair, I've stuck stuck with it myself. He's like, well... I like playing football, but if I get a job that pays me well and gives me flexibility and freedom on my time, then I can go play football in my free time. But then that way I know I'm not worrying about paying my bills. Because if I'm playing football in the tiny leagues and bringing home £100, £200 a week, I can't can't cover my overheads with that, can I? So I'm like, it's it's about taking a pragmatic stance, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, one thing that we faintly touched on is that higher education also really restricts you in terms of what you can do later on as well. For example... As uh, Noshe mentioned, was that after he finished his degree, he realised he wanted to do something else. And if someone other than Noshe's position would have would have had to pay another six thousand pounds to be able to make that career change. Mm. So unless that, like you mentioned, the passion is there initially, and you really, really want to stick to that path, what degree you're doing, let's say, uh, other chemical engineering. Now I have to specifically find a job there. I can't just um, go into another field unless I one show passion about that field to have done some courses or some sort of training for that field or have contacts as well so it, it becomes really challenging in that sense as well rather than just going into an apprenticeship or training from the start where you can easily then go into something else yeah yeah but uh, i think we will um stop our discussion on results day and higher education there we'll take a short break and then we'll come back to our next topic which is on the nurse killer
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live with myself, Rohan Lachima. And as promised earlier, we do have Nasheed Zafar and Hamad Khan in the studio as well. And uh, we just discussed on Results Day and in regards to the need for higher education. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, today we're going to go through some different topics um, that are, have come up in the news recently as well since our last show and uh, give our opinion on those and what we think is going on. So the next one we want to talk about is Lucy, Lucy Letby, who has been named uh, for a while now, she's been on the news, as a serial killer who was a nurse at a hospital that uh, specifically targeted and murdered babies. So Hamad will give us the rundown of this story. Just before I get into the sort of macabre story, I I, th- I think it's good that we're pivoting towards these different news stories. I just want to ask you guys. I don't know. Whether, I I don't feel like I'm plugged into the news anymore. So uh, the reason why I thought this was a good show is that you know you gather these news stories and just have the pulse of the moment. And this particular one is quite extraordinary and actually I I imagine inexplicable in certain senses. So Lucy Letby's case emerged quite disturbingly as an incident um, that's shaken both the medical community here in the UK and also the wider public. Uh, When it initially came to light in 2018, we're now hearing about it because of the charges and the public trial um, with the jury, but um, this was initially put to light in 2018. So British nurse Letby, she faced serious allegations of an involvement in a string of infant deaths um, that occurred in the neonatal unit of the Countess of Chester Hospital. So this is a period primarily between 2015 and 2016. And the charges are well, it's quite extraordinary just to read it out. But eight accounts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. And to contextualise that, that's in the NICU unit. So that is newborn babies, newborn babies who are perhaps even born prematurely. And so these are the most vulnerable um, patients that you'll see within the medical world. Um, as it were. And these accusations were grounded in um, suspicion by doctors and the consultants at the time and her wider medical colleagues um, suspecting Letby of intentionally inflicting harm um, on these infants, the very infants that she was tasked to care for, the very infants that she was responsible to care for, the very infants that she was paid to care for and trusted uh, to care for. And the essence of these allegations revolve around alleged administration of medications that endangered the lives of the newborns whilst she was taking care of them. And these medications, as a result of giving them to the newborns, led to fatal outcomes, um, which then unfortunately led to their premature and unnecessary deaths via severe harm. And of course, um, infants imagining that they're defenceless, they have no sort of um, protection provided to them other than the medical staff and community that's caring for them and so to have the very point of contact who you entrust to actually care for these children, to be actually the source of harm, um, is something that's quite extraordinary. Um, the intensity of these charges um, is quite extraordinary. We've seen a lot of legal scrutiny, and there's now some sort of reflection around whether there sh- is a sense of distrust between healthcare professionals, mm. uh, but also within the medical community, how was this able to happen? Because this wasn't a one-time thing. This was a multiple occurrence that happened across multiple years from around 2016 up until 2018 when she was charged um, of attacking newborns by injecting insulin, poisoning them effectively, injecting their infants with air so that they have some sort of embolus that then um, causes um, immediate death via via strangulation um, effectively. Um, And so 
this is not just a miscarriage of justice in the form of um, the medical establishment at the hospital, but also who is let be, how did this happen, and what is the public's reaction to this? I just wanted to touch base with you guys first of all. Did you hear of it? What do you make of it? What's your initial thoughts and words? Yeah, I think, like you mentioned, the severity of this is uh, quite a bit, a bit of a setback. I think this has been the worst um, serial killer crime that we've had in the UK. And uh, I was I was reading earlier as well that this is the... She's only the third woman to receive such a severe sentence in the history of the uh, most recent wow. history in the UK. And the other two, one is uh, Rose West, who tortured and killed at least nine young women in the 1970s. And and the second one is Joanna, who murdered three men, and uh, which was known as the Peterborough Ditch Murders in 2013. And this is the third one that's received a severity. And what she's actually received is a life sentence for each murder that she's committed, um, which, which shows how severe each of those crimes is. Um, being a ne- working in the neonatal ward and being a nurse in that capacity, obviously, it's a person that you have a lot of trust with, where you're perfectly okay with leaving your newborn child with this person and, and um, assuming that they are given their perfect attention and care to your child as well. I can't stress, I'll, I'll get to you, Noshi, but just to contextualise it, how sensitive the neonatal unit is and mm. what sort of atmosphere is there. It's it's not, it's otherworldly in its sort of angelic sort of procedure where nurses typically and of course this is an atypical case they pour their heart and soul in 110% I was reading a memoir by um, Georgina Lucas um, if it not for you and talking about her um, baby who was stillborn it wasn't stillborn but um, had medical complications and so they had to um, take him off the ventilator still in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit and how the emotions that you have as a parent seeing your child in a room tangled up in wires and receiving medical care and these are premature babies these are babies who are fighting for their lives who then actually consultants multiple times for various of these um, newborns who are unfortunately killed said actually we've got it all clear they're going to be okay so then to be in that fearful position and then hear the news that everything's going to be okay and then to inexplicably have your child your newborn child killed and and then I think it's also a struggle to even understand the intentions of the murder as well. So that's, you know, that's what we're talking about. And it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, no, of course. As in, it's deeply tragic for the families involved. And what you mentioned, obviously, is, is it must be a huge roller coaster of emotions. Um, obviously, going from from deeply concerned to, to that big sigh of relief when, when the senior consultant tells you that, you know what, it's all going to be fine, hopefully. And then, like you say, you don't see it coming. You would be blindsided from it, right? Um, but again, it it raises questions of, as in, with regards to this story, I was reading that there there were members of medical staff who had wanted to raise concerns, but these concerns were not listened to by by the relevant um, sort of bodies that that investigate these things. Um, and it does make you think, if if the whistleblowers are not being listened to. The, obviously, in this case, we're talking about Lucy Letby, who killed 
multiple babies but what about if there are doctors who perhaps are not killing but not following best practices and and actually harming the 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 medical chances of various patients of all ages right mm. and let's be real in every industry there's always a bad apple or two somewhere right so surely people need to feel empowered to be able to raise their voice in a confidential manner and raise their concerns of so and so is is not doing the best for 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 their patients you know, this concept isn't new like you said you know, in medicine we're typically compared to like the um, airline industry where you have incredible margins of harm and error and you know never um, events that can occur but they should never happen air crash killing hundreds of people on board needlessly um, unnecessarily similarly an operation gone wrong killing a um, patient needlessly unnecessarily so how do you stop these never events as, as they're called and there's whole systems put in place and there's systems of thinking as well put into cl- uh, clinical practice where like you said the clinician should be empowered to be self-reflective and recognize when something's going wrong and then there's managers and ethical boards and um, directors who have systems put in place channels put in place where you are able to voice your concerns now what happened in this case remarkable absolutely extraordinary again some people might argue it's not because doctors are being disempowered in every angle but this consultant voiced his concerns mm. for various reasons one of them being um, I think Lucy Letby the, the, the killer she um, said quite chillingly at one point after the consultant said oh there's good chances of survival we're quite happy where, where the newborn is in a state of health she said oh he's not going to make it out of the hospital is he and so that raised up, you know, it was quite chilling. And and so, and through various other behaviours, they pieced together that actually there's been a string of um, unfortunate outcomes under her care, and this is now a cause of concern, and we're going to flag it up. What happened eventually was that these doctors were forced to apologise to Letby because there was a, a consequence and this narrative that actually there's a bullying and a misjudgment and misplacement of power put in place where these doctors are unnecessarily suspecting that be. And the consultant, I don't know whether you've seen his interviews, you can, visibly broken, but also being told that actually your concerns, your voices of fear is not right and actually you need to now apologise. Mm. And then to That's be validated on this stage and it, it's the a, whole It's a very quandary. strange power play, isn't it? And... and s- Along the lines of a power play, obviously, she didn't turn up to court for her sentencing, as in, in cases such as this, what are your thoughts on this? Because personally, I think when, regardless of the crime, right, if obviously you've been found guilty by a court, you might not agree with it, but at the very least, especially if you're innocent, we don't, we're not following that line here, but in any crime, right, if you, you've been found guilty of your crime, the least you ought to do is turn up to court. Now, I believe the Ministry of Justice is trying to enact some changes soon. To, to basically compel all all sort of convicted uh, criminals to turn up in person for sentencing. That's a, I did not know that you're saying she did not turn up. She to ref- her yeah, own. she she refused to leave her holding cell. Wow. So she, again, she's trying a power play on the judge. That I think I think one thing the court was also trying to figure out was her intentions behind this, which was difficult because she would obviously state. Well, it, well, I think that's what everyone's trying to find out when I'm hearing these stories and. There's a whole other conversation about media representation here, which we definitely will get into. Mm. Um, But it's, okay, 
horrible, horrible, horrible. Can't read more of it. But why? Why? And actually, there there was um. So the detectives that they found certain notes um in Letby's household. Actually, it was in a post-it note. Um, and there was words like, "There are no words. I'm an awful person. I pray every day for that. No hope." I panic. I'll never have children. Kill myself right now. Again, true, apologies. There should be warnings. Like this is, you know, quite macabre stuff. And then, you know, she writes police investigation. Forget slander, discrimination. I feel very alone and scared. So there's emotions here that I was actually quite surprised to see. This sense of innocence in, in regards to regret um, and um, re- regretting the um, sort of actions and actually also the outcomes rather than and consequences that she, she was facing at the time with the investigation. But then the detectives also released, um, there's actually a podcast, it's extraordinary, someone's created a podcast around this already. Um, but the detectives of this case actually went on the podcast and said, this was one of the most chilling cases because there's various moments in a case like this where you expect people to break, where you expect people to be like, okay, the, like this is where their emotions come in now and this is where we can actually talk to them properly. And that being particularly when you get charged. And when you get charged, usually, and uh, the detective said, you'll see, you know, people put their hands in their ears because they're so overwhelmed or they just uncontrollably cry. That's where your emotions come out. She did nothing of this sort. Yeah. Now, again, this is this is not a defense of Lucy Letby at all, right? Oh, but, no. no. But what if she has some mental conditions? What if she's something like a sociopath or something, right? These people can be extraordinarily dangerous, right? And perhaps going forwards, again, this is just an open idea. There are people far more qualified than me on this to to verify if this is a good idea or not. But all medical staff perhaps to have some sort of mental health screening annually or something, right? Mm. People's mental state does change over time, particularly in in a line like medicine. You are going to see some some pretty unpleasant stuff at times, right? And it it can definitely change people and, and, and the way they operate. Um, so you might be completely sane at 22 years old, but perhaps by 42 you've seen a few things and perhaps you don't yeah. have the same sense of judgment you did when you were a bit younger. Mm. I, I, I agree in the reporting and in the news and the noise. I'm struggling to find out, okay, why can't we actually get a holistic profile of her? Horrible actions, great, but what's the, what's the background? What, what's the, the intention? There are what's some... The uh, there are some, well, I would say conclusions, yeah. but assumptions made by the investigators and the yeah. court in regards to why she did this. No, I, absolutely. But I think with the media representation and like, like Noshi's saying, like there should be some sort of mental health appreciation in yeah. the reporting, but also then perhaps <clears throat> embedded in a clinical practice. It's a double-edged sword because historically you see in me- medicine actually mental health being used as a fig leaf for oh, you're not fit for practice. Yeah, oh, so actually, say, when, when does it become uh, discriminatory? Right, uh, yeah. and, and it historically has, which is why doctors don't necessarily feel comfortable with c- coming forward, which is why they work to the bone and then, you know, they're in their 50s, they become a consultant and then they're, they're, they're utterly burnt out and they're like, what have I, you know, sacrificed my life for? Mm. It's that typical pathway that you have in medicine um, because they don't have the appropriate procedures of support for mental health. Similarly, though, you could argue that that doctor didn't have that support he himself was distraught that he was in a position of care and he was failing his um, patients, the most vulnerable patients you can imagine, defenseless newborn um, babies. And he's voicing his concerns. He, he himself is upset. And now he's essentially being bullied by being, you know, constructed as a bully in this narrative and saying, actually, no, you need to apologize. This is a misuse of your power uh, um, and whatever else it was. Um, I, what I really would like is a holistic, complete um, sort of reporting from the media. The reason why I say that, just to, to move on quickly, is this 
sort of frustration and confusion that you have with the British media that because she's white, because she's a nurse, because she's a woman, it's so extraordinary that she could do this thing. No, it's not. Anyone can be a killer. Anyone can be a ghastly murderer. And as three melanated young men in this room, I'm pretty sure that you can count on your fingers multiple times the difference in the media representation that you've experienced and you've, you know, absolutely, heard in- yeah. And, and before, before people kind of think you're jumping uh, to conclusions, even with the pers- the consultant who reported this, he was a person of Asian background. Yeah. And many people have been voicing this concern on social media. I've read a lot of people giving their opinion, their analysis of it, was that the reason why it wasn't heard because of the nature of how loose lip it was. She was someone who was um, seen as someone who's very soft-spoken, um, a woman who pretended to show a lot of care for yeah. the babies. And one of the things that uh, she was actually doing is that every time a baby, she lost a baby or something happened uh, to a baby in her care, she would text message the other doctors, go to the other nurses, be like, oh, I'm really affected by this, I'm really upset. And then they'd have to console her. Mm. And uh, she'd pretend that she was trying to show a lot of care. Exactly. It's, it's just hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, I'm not saying that going forwards, whenever medical staff lose a patient, that the initial suspicion should be on on those who provided the direct care to them most recently but again it shouldn't go so far the other way that they're completely excluded particularly if the circumstances are unusual right of course like you say doctors and nurses are already enough uh, under enough pressure right we don't need to put them under more Mm. but by the the same measure if we just sort of let them go scot-free because oh yeah but they're a nice person Mm. unfortunately sometimes there are horribly horribly uh, dangerous individuals who, who can be hiding right beneath our noses it's yeah it's very much playing onto people's emotions but back to your point about these stereotypes if we look in the context of this medical setting it doesn't require anyone to be particularly strong or have strength or anything right it, like you mentioned it was things like injecting air or insulin into, into to various drip bags and whatnot like that in, into these babies it just requires the right person to have the right things to hand but you don't need to be particularly clever. You don't need to be particularly strong to to, to do any of this. My no. frustration lies in the public imagination. Shock horror that, a, you know, a, a, a white woman can do this or shock horror that this isn't someone that I thought it would be. And I'm not someone that likes to me. I, I hated always pointing, you know, to, towards the race of things and whatever else because I used to think that's secondary to the issue. But it's so blatant now... The images that you see of Let Me, I mean, you've got your laptop open, right? It's that same image. Perfectly brushed hair, smiling uh, uh, um, uh, in, at the camera. Whereas you see any other um, character that is outside of the cultural background that Lucy Letby is from, it's not who you are, it's not where you're from, it's the allegation, so you're immediately what you're accused of rather than nurse or rather than your occupation, and it's immediately going to be a mugshot-style image. Yeah. This was also discussed a lot, oh, again, on social media, not the news yeah, itself, yeah. where uh, or she, she, so she was caught or in a way arrested in 2018, yeah. but it wasn't until recently when the court proceedings have now completed that they have started using her mugshot rather than 
like you mentioned, her her, her pictures and her her the nurse fact attire, that she's radically yeah. she's 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 radically changed in her appearance. Yeah. You know, you can imagine the mental distraught. Hopefully, that she's going through. You know, she's nothing in comparison to what the pictures are showing. Yeah. I do to play devil's advocate. I do appreciate that maybe what certain elements of the media are trying to portray is that. She was a nurse. She was like everyone else. Here's this happy-go-lucky girl in her professional setting, and it's and here's the diametric opposite of you know what she's presented and her actions. I guess that that's the underlying message. But there's you you won't see that replicated in um a per, uh, if a person of color was was accused, which is unfortunate and it's tragic and it's. Could, could, but could that have um, drawbacks as well? When we almost try to sympathize for a person who's been accused. Yeah, corrected correct yet, and uh, this might have been led to secondary consequences as well, where there's actually been a GoFundMe page set up for her defence. Yeah. How, however, I, I I do agree with Hamad right, where I think I'm all for offering people the benefit of the doubt and guilty until proven innocent and all of that. But yeah. the way media portrayals are for people who are charged. I think it's uncomfortable how real we can see the difference in in portrayals between p- people of different colors, right? Mm. Um and it's that case of like you say in this case perhaps the whole guilty until proven innocent and and the nice uh, the nice pictures with obviously her in a normal day wear etc blah 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 versus someone perhaps of color just being having their mugshot put up just the moment they're charged rather than the moment they're found guilty. Yeah. It, it it's just that subliminal insinuation where it's how could this happen if you ask any other person yes it's extraordinarily shocking but uh you know evil and miscarriage of justice and you know or or all negative traits is not in uh, uh native to a particular culture or a particular color or or whatever else and that i think we shouldn't take the limelight away from you know the spotlight away from the issues of this case but there needs to be a public open discussion on why are we willing to um afford um upset towards people people of color but then to afford confusion to non people of color and have this sort of disparity where it's shocking for um certain people to be you know in the wrong and where it's you know it's like oh well i expected that for them yeah so Okay, question f- to both of you. In light of this case, are your perceptions of public healthcare different in terms of would you feel less comfortable now to you yourself or for a member of your family to be in receipt of care in a hospital setting, particularly where you're not able to be sort of with that family member 24-7, like you have to just sort of hand them over if you like to medical stuff? I can't actively say that my steps going forward will change. But it does make you reflect, like we mentioned earlier as well, is that oftentimes we've given complete blind trust to a, med- a medical healthcare profession mm. where they're taking care of you or a family member and you've just automatically expected them to be able to give them this care, which is absolutely the best. You know, yeah. you just have to you have to go along with it. Um, but uh, like a mother, I agree with you earlier as well, that there should be a holistic approach or a open approach to showing the public why this has happened or how this has happened. Yeah. So that going forward, it does not affect the public perception that way as well, where we become, uh, we get to a stage where there's a lot of distrust. Yeah. Because if you have distrust in the NHS, it's only going to harm them as, well, we, as, as it has yeah, been. Yeah, exactly. Because think about it as in, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, whatever, 
we'll, we'll all have our own families and then you, you, you'll all be thinking okay would would I trust my my, my wife my children with with the doctor if for, for any reason they needed an extended stay at the hospital and given the way things are yes we know this was just a one-off case but mm. there are always cases of malpractice here and there some of yeah. them obviously much more minor than this yeah. um, but it does very much make and you question that, that brings me back to your earlier point as well that you mentioned um, obviously in this scenario instance specifically even one bad apple is, is, is too severe. We, we can't have that taking place. So what is the approach where we can avoid this going forward? Um, what policies do we need to put in place for healthcare professionals for this to not take place again? So in the medical world, we're, we're aware of this. We're aware of pu- protecting public perception and um, patient trust, right? It's the thing mm. that you learn from 15 years old, right? Make sure you wear your tie and your watch and your, you know, you actually can't wear watches regardless of that, but your, you know, smart clothes and iron your clothes and speak properly and soft-spokenly and empathetically because all of these are um, subtle gestures that you, you're, you're presenting yourself in the best manner and you take um, command of your job and you know you know your job inside and out well. So it's, again, it's not a afterthought. It's something that we're taught very early on and it's hammered in multiple times. It's interesting that you say, has this changed my perception? I've got both legs in the medical world. My perception of the health service changed drastically regardless of this case, actually. And I don't think it's much towards this case. My sort of faith in, you know, submitting people that I love to, to the health service changed when I saw doctors and medical students that I respected talking about private healthcare insurance. Because they said, oh, now I don't feel safe for my family yeah. when we're talking about the winter pressures. And that's when I thought, wow, that, that, that's, this, this is getting scary, um, where you know, pe- people in that same position. But what I will say is that there's always a silver lining to this. And I think this, even in the horror of this case, it actually impresses that there's an enduring duty of care. That consultant persisted in his complaints and um, the systems of um, information and complaints, though initially failed, they enabled ultimately, and you know, there should be more cases on why it didn't get to the conclusion faster, but it did ultimately deliver justice. And we hope in some form closure and, and an essence of peace to the family and of the, of the newborns that were unjustly killed. But I, and I, I think the health service and the character of the health service in this country is enduring and persistence, really. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think that gives a good overview of the topic that we were discussing. And I think um, one thing does want to end on with the people who've lost their children or whose children have been affected. Obviously, know best of how they're feeling right now. And there was a father who uh, whose daughter was born 15 weeks early, and was only given a five percent chance of survival. So he's and then obviously she did survive at the end. And he mentions that God saved her, but then devil was the one who found her mean accusing Lucy Lepi of mm. being the devil and I think that's really um, the end takeaway that we have here for me as well that is quite haunting isn't it that is quite haunting um, we'll, we'll end that topic here we're going to take a short news break and then we will come back to our next topic Allah, 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. We have been created for a great purpose, which is the true understanding of God. On that understanding depends our salvation. It delivers us from every impure and doubtful way and leads us to the edge of a pure and clear river. It can be acquired only through divine revelation. When being delivered entirely from our ego, we dive deep with an eager heart into an unattainable being. Our humanness, having appeared in the court of Godhead, returns with some signs and lights from that world. Thus, that which the worldly ones look upon with contempt is the only thing which brings a long-separated one in an instant to his beloved and bestows comfort upon the lovers of the divine. It relieves a person suddenly of all types of egoistic limitations until that true light descends upon the heart. It is not possible that the heart should be illumined. The imperfection of human reason and the limitations of current knowledge bear witness to the need of revelation. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. Remember that no one will descend from heaven. All our opponents who are alive today will die, and no one will see Jesus, son of Mary, descending from heaven. Then their next generation will pass away, and no one of them will see this spectacle. Then the generation next after that will pass away without seeing the Son of Mary descending from heaven. Then God will make them anxious that though the time of the supremacy of the cross had passed away and the world had undergone great changes, yet the Son of Mary had not descended from heaven. Then wise people will suddenly discard this belief. The third century after today will not yet have come to a close when those who hold this belief whether Muslims or Christians, will lose all hope and will give up this belief in disgust. There will then be only one religion that will prevail in the world and only one leader. I have come only to sow the seed which has been sown by my hand. Now it will sprout and grow and flourish and no one can arrest its growth. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, um, especially to our new listeners who have just joined in as well. Uh, I'm your host, Turhan Lachima, and today we have Nashi Zafar and Hamad Khan in the studio as well. So, in the last hour, we've been talking about two different topics. One was related to results that have come up over the last two weeks and their relevance when it comes to higher education and looking for jobs. And uh, second, we've just discussed a quite um, quite sad, I'd say, mm. which is I'm, I'm reflecting, I'm thinking of it right now as well, the Lucy Letby case of the nurse killer um, who's been sentenced now and convicted now as well. And uh, I mentioned some other stories you want to talk about today as well. And the next one is going to be in regards to the 
new policies or new bill, I'd say, that's being passed in Denmark in regards to banning Quran burnings and a punishment being prescribed for this. And like I mentioned earlier, the reason why we do want to discuss this is because we've spoken about this topic vastly in the past and mainly in regards to criticising why this has been an issue. And we don't just necessarily talk about Quran burnings, but we've talked about freedom of expression and speech in regards to all um, walks of society, whether that's in regards to uh, your profession or political views that you hold, etc. So, Noshi, could you tell us more about what's happening in Denmark? Yeah, so yesterday the Danish government presented a bill uh, into parliament um, that could lead to a ban on burning the Quran, uh, amongst other religious texts, in public. Denmark's foreign minister, Lars Rasmussen, told Danish radio that the move sends an important political signal to the rest of the world. Burning the Quran under the new law would be an act punishable by fines or up to two years in prison. The Justice Minister of Denmark explained that the proposed law is intended to be written into the same regulation that currently bans the desecration of other countries' flags. This law would prohibit the improper treatment of objects of significant religious significance to a religious community, uh, Peter Hummelgaard told, told news reporters. Um, speaking at this news conference yesterday, uh, he also said that a spate of recent uh, Quran burnings were senseless taunts aimed to incite discord and hatred, adding that national security was the primary motivation for the ban. The United States and United Kingdom governments recently announced that authorities in Denmark had disrupted a number of planned terror attacks and made arrests following these Quran burnings. We can't continue to stand by with our arms crossed while several in individuals do everything they can to provoke violent reactions. Um, again, comments from the Justice Minister of Denmark. So, I've got many, many thoughts on this story, right? There's more in, in that article, but I won't read it all. But uh, I've got many thoughts on this. Is in yes, it's, it's it's a step in the right direction. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like they're doing the right thing for a wrong reason, mm. right? Okay, let, let's let's unpack that a little bit. So they're putting this bill forwards because they uh, they want to protect their national security because they think there will possibly be terror attacks or possibly less dangerous but obviously still disruptive riots and, and other sort of public violence, right? Okay, that's not the right response to a Quran burning either, right? Because, well... Uh, so let's ask this, as a Muslim, yeah. what is your personal perspective? What do you think is the appropriate I, response to Quran burnings happening in I, Denmark? I'm deeply upset by it as well, but violence and taking justice into your own hands isn't the right way to go about it, right? As in, it's about having public discord, right? It's about having... Discourse. Discourse, sorry. <laughs> There's an opposite <laughs> of discord. Thank, thank you for calling me that. Sorry, yes. Public discourse, right? Actually having conversations with those who who want to, to perhaps provoke you right mm. and find out exactly why why exactly are you offended by my presence as a muslim in in a country that we both share right or what exactly do you have against my religious text right the thing is if i went out and god forbid i went and burned a bible or a torah or or any other religious scripture rightfully so people of the affected faith would be outraged right and if they took justice into their own hands, do we think that they would be treated in the same way that Muslims objecting to a Quran burning would be treating? I don't think so, unfortunately, right? So, again, I think all parties on all sides are wrong on this. 
it's, it's a step in the right direction, but it would have been nice if they had just come forward and said, do you know what, we're going to make this illegal because it's the right thing to do, it's the decent thing to do, to not offend people for their faith, right? We're, we live in the modern age where now due to many, many reasons, and again, I think that's probably a whole other discussion for, for another time, but people of all faiths, of all backgrounds, live all over the world, right? As in, mm. it's no longer a case of you talk to people of a certain colour and you'll only find them in a certain part of the world or people of a certain faith can only be found in another part of the world. We are a very highly interlinked global community at this point. And so whether it be for economics, whether it be for persecutions reasons, whether it's for political reasons or anything else, people have shifted away from what perhaps for centuries would have been their family's home countries. Um, I, I, I think it's extraordinary. If we think about it a bit more abstractly, you know, essentially, Nosha, what you're saying is globalization exists. We're all living in different cultures. We're a huge melting pot of different cultures everywhere around the world. You've got two different people, vastly different from vastly different historical cultures, and they're just meeting each other. And you multiply that by a million, right? We're all meeting different cultures and having interactions of new knowledge. Why does that cause discord, hatred, a clash of any sort. That's the, that that's something that's interesting to me. Why do you feel a threat when you see someone who feels utterly actualized by their spirituality, essentially? Yeah, exactly. As in okay, as people who who follow a, a religious practice ourselves, I put the question to you. Are you offended when you meet another person of either a different religious belief or, or one without any beliefs whatsoever? I get excited. Yeah, I, 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 I I'll yeah. say because especially when you go to like the Jalsa Solana, so the uh, global um, convention, as it were, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. You know, I, I'm tasked with meeting guests from around the world and you know giving them a tour and it, giving insights of our community and our teachings and Islamic teachings. And it's just the best conversations to have when you have Christians. Go, oh, that's really interesting. There, that coincides with the principles of X, Y, Z, and it's like, and then you have these really incredible, beautiful discussions. I, it's this concept of I, I don't know what it is, but for me, I've always loved the plurality of religions and seeing commonality, right? And, it, and how extraordinary that is. And if you're completely firm in your belief and your principles, and I don't think that they're immoral or they're grotesque in any way, or, or they're not harming me or harming anyone else, then absolutely you do you. You know, yeah, it, the, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, this is Islamic, fundamental Islamic principle, but also. It's just my social behavior. Yeah, no, like, like, like you mentioned, Hamad, that commonality is very important because as a person of faith, you would also believe that we all originate from the same source. And in that sense, we all are, in a sense, brothers and sisters to each other. This only creates harmony and cohesion amongst people. But now we're touching on why you don't like other people or why you don't like their cultures and things because you don't think that you're the same. Mm. There's this indifference. Yeah. Either I've been given divine fortune, not given to you, and I guess that's in a sense a level of spiritual racism there where, you know, whether you're from a particular class, from a particular country, from a particular culture, from a particular religion where you think, actually, you know, I'm better than you. <laughs> I've, I've been favoured by God um, against you. That's I, what I think. I want to put a slightly more pointed question to both of you on this then. Okay. Is it because historically, for thousands of years, we've had Christians and Jews living in Europe, particularly in Northern Europe also, right? Mm. Whereas Islam has actually only come into Northern Europe relatively recently. And therefore, there's there's an actual physical racism involved in this as well, because for lack of a better way to put it, there are many, many thousands, millions white 
Christians and Jews. Uh, and in places like Denmark and Sweden, people are familiar with their faces. These are the people they've grown up with. These are the people they go to work with. Mm. Whereas typically, many of the Muslims that have, have moved into this part of the world have moved there from other parts of the world and therefore are of a different color. They are, to use your words from earlier, more melanated, right? Yeah. Um, I, 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 think, I think it's um, what we were just touching on. Uh, both parts are important. So one is a threat to uh, new cultures, new people coming in, but also a fear of faith as well. And not just not faith necessarily, but organized religions, in a sense. Um, if you think about it, so Sweden, actually, Sweden's also a country that's come up in this discussion, and they've mentioned that we are not going to follow uh, the steps of Denmark uh, as mm. such and make a ban on this yet. So, But if you think about it, Sweden only banned blasphemy laws in the 1970s. So before that, they also had this in the case where you're meant, you weren't allowed to disrespect God, Jesus, the Bible, etc. So these things have always been in place. It's only been recent, that's 34 years now, where they've given this perception that you're allowed, you're allowed to say absolutely what, you're allowed to offend people of faith and religions. Now, I think there ought to be a middle ground because let's look at another country that's still got its blasphemy laws in place, Pakistan, right? Now, when those laws, when when the political and legal structures of the country are hijacked by people of a very extreme view mm. the other in the other direction, deeply, fundamentally religious, right? Again, it's a different conversation for a different time whether we agree on their elements on and their ways of practice, but when they effectively become gatekeepers for a religion and, and there is so, there's no sort of separation of church and state, so to speak, that's also wrong in, in its own way, right? So having having no blasphemy laws is, is probably not so much a bad thing, but it's a case of where do you draw the line of freedom of speech versus offending the, the rights and sensitivities of others? Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and one thing you sorry just for interjecting yeah. there is that um, it's that's been the case not just more recently in Muslim countries, but in the past this was for hundreds of years. This was the case in the in Europe and Christian countries as well. And you mentioned that Jews and Christians used to live in Europe. Well, this wasn't the case for a long time. We know, for example, King Edward the um, first re- rejected all the Jews from England at one time, mm-hmm. and at that point is when they moved to the Middle East. And they settled yeah. in Jerusalem and other mm. countries which were Muslim at the time. So it's not always been the case where um, th- it's only been relevant to one part of the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, no, I, I mean, j- just to reiterate that point, yeah. you can, well, the, certain political prominent people in this country have called out um, or actually portrayed Islam for religious conservatism and backward attitudes, air quotes. Um, but then at the same time, you have the Charter of Medina that talks about religious polarity and affording rights to people and the rights and laws that they want to be um, beholden to. And at the same time, in Europe, you had the Middle Ages, feudalism. You didn't have any sort of um, free f- freedom of thought or opportunity. In reality, the West is also, it's not just Islam. Like I mentioned, it's organized religions as a whole. Because for hundreds of years, uh, let's say, uh, I've given two major religions, um, Judaism and Christianity, has been at war with each other. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until um, Islam came about in uh, Palestine, Jerusalem, and these places that coexistence was established for faiths, and uh, those um, feuds were reduced and stuff like that. But in, in this day and age, it's more obviously one religion which is being shown, in, which is being shown in the light, and it's only Islam which um, is objecting to this freedom of expression or this freedom of um, speech. Well, the, the, the thing is, I find it hilarious because. 
it becomes such an academic discussion. Mm. Uh, do you have the freedom of speech? And is freedom of speech freedom to offend? And yada, yada, and you have these really contracted sort of, sort of arguments. And Mehdi Hassan, he, uh, this brilliant journalist debater, just hilariously put it at the height of, because obviously this is in the same vein and theme and um, discussion of Charlie Hebdo and you know this concept of you know what's what is there retaliation for freedom of offence and you know should you have the free, um, freedom to offend uh, religiously historically important people items, objects, whatever else it is. And he, he, he hilariously put this to the audience um, publicly and said, okay, you have the freedom. If you're in a packed elevator, would you fart? In a packed elevator, would you fart? No. That says it's absolutely silly. That's just ridiculous. Why would you? Why? Why you're shaking your head? Not sure. Why? Why would you not? You you have the freedom <laughs> you to fart. You're not exercising your freedom. For God's sake, why aren't you exercising your freedom? You can fart in the elevator. There, there's a concept of decency, and and at the very least, at, at, even at a very low level, respect for your fellow human beings. Ding 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 ding. And it's that concept. Yeah. That. Civility. Why? Why is it so hard to recognise that you're always in a shared contract with one another, whether it's written, unwritten? You know, I'm going to afford you respect. I came in late. I apologise. <laughs> I, you know, whatever else it is, you you have relations to one another. You 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 you're you're afforded a, a, an understanding to one another. It's this concept of civility. So when we bring it back to Denmark, saying that actually these. Um, but Quranic burnings are, uh, um, you know, they're creating havoc and whatever else, and we want to put a ban on it. The underlying thing is actually it's poisoning your society's minds. It's it's creating discord and uncivility, and that's the reason why you should be banning it. And it's the same concept when you hear Macron in France saying that, oh, now now there's this um, particular problem with a particular faction of French society that is averse to its principles of secularity and secularism, which is absolutely false and ridiculous because Islam founded and championed the three principles of um, th- th- that yeah, sort of thing. There, there is a very sort of egotistical sense of being being on a on a high pedestal and and having a high ground to stand on when in in my opinion the the west much like the east has a very very flawed history yeah in terms of human rights abuses uh, complete injustices towards uh, large portions of of their own populations i don't think countries like denmark like france have a leg to stand on to to lecture the Middle East or Muslims or anyone to say, oh no, we need to do things like this because this is civil, because actually you can't talk about human rights and the rights of citizens unless you're fulfilling the rights of all citizens, not just those who you deem to be worthy of having their rights fulfilled. But even before getting to that point, you have to ask yourself to to these people, how are you defending the rights of any person by burning the Quran or burning anything? What 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 is that? It's such a hollow gesture that exactly. is designed ipso facto to just injure. Yes, you like this? I'm burning it. Well, yeah. yeah the other thing is right, and this is uh, possibly not where their burning comes from. But do they really think that destroying one copy of a book is going to take it out of circulation? Of course, it's not, right? And let's say, God forbid, all the Qurans on on Earth disappeared tomorrow. How long is it going to take to to print a new copy? I say less than a day. There's so many people who have memorized the entirety of the Quran now. You get 
600 such people and they just recite out one page there you go give you give them 20 minutes you've got a new copy of the Quran yeah, just like that yeah, it's not going to disappear yeah. I, 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 I love that um, uh, characterization of the Quran being the most it's not a character I imagine it is the truth it's the it's most read book because you're reading five times a day that's a single person single practicing Muslim multiply that by different communities nations and then countries globally and then like you rightly said portions of the Quran are memorized and there's people who have memorized the, enti- the entirety of the Quran yeah. front and back letter by letter um, there's now 2 billion Muslims and, that, that is and the meaning of what Quran is yeah. Yeah. of dread, of dread. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of those 2 billion Muslims if even 1% of them have memorised it in its entirety that's still 2 million people around the world but let me. No, it's not. It's I, 20 I, I million, think, isn't it? Sorry, my mind's off today. <laughs> the issue that they're having is with the content of the Quran. And I personally, and I think what a lot of Muslims agree, is you have the absolute right to criticize if you don't understand or like something about the Quran. Okay? Yeah. If you don't read it, question it. And we encourage that. And I personally like to engage in or observe interfaith discussions taking yeah. place on these things. Our own religion teaches us as Muslims to question our own faith when we don't understand it. Go and ask questions. Yes. Go and talk to those who are more learned and they will teach you. They will explain to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is not, our religion does not want us to follow it blindly. It wants us to explore it, find out the the reasons behind certain rulings and certain traditions and then from there not only would we be more devout but we would understand why certain things are are prescribed to us in certain and, ways and it specifically mentions that when you are speaking with the ahli kitab which are the people of the book which is referred to as the christians and the jews mainly in the in the quran that do um discuss with them or come to a conclusion with them according to the revelation that you have received from god mm. and that's how you settle the differences amongst yourselves and uh, um appeal to their scripture and also mention what your scripture says and argue according to that. Uh, and it says that whoever does not um, use the revelation of God to settle the differences, those are the farcical meaning the rebellious people. Because ultimately, the, the essence, the kernel of truth that you're touching on there is that revelation is revelation, truth from God is truth from God. It, I always bring this up, there's this brilliant poet, um, poem by um, is it is it Hafiz Rumi who says I'm in love with every church and every cloister and every temple and every mosque mm. because that is where the name of the one true God is recited. So there's different manifestations yeah. to your devotion and divinity, um, uh, devotion to, to, to divinity and whatever, whatever that may be conceptualized in your spirituality but my thing is let me let me be an armchair cycle uh, psychologist here why why is it that you you actually want to burn a book it, it's yeah. almost a teenager sort of mentality or even actually much younger than that it's where, childish mentality it, but, but it's it? an acting out it's an it's external up. acting out I've had this festering of hatred annoyance of confusion perhaps the element of fear mix that all in and you're now for whatever reason I feel compelled to march out onto the streets and match to paper uh, hoping for I don't know, but is it is it a spectacle for if, your if, own self? And, is it? We, we always use this argument: if 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 Islam was um, as much of an issue or flawed as you as you claim, then it would be very easily to just break down the arguments mentioned within. Yeah. You wouldn't need to do these public um, yeah. acts of anger or the, protest. The other thing is, like you mentioned, it goes back to this childish or caveman-like instinct, instinct even perhaps. Right? I'll give you an example. When I finished my GCSEs, I was I was quite just frustrated with many many things at school at that time so i remember that summer holidays after year 11 i went and burnt all my books all of them right (laughs) (laughs) to be fair it was completely unnecessary reporting (laughs) reporting not shared to the authorities right now (laughs) but it was cathartic right but that was a completely different context now 
in my case, for me, it was very personal because, well, let's just put it this way. I had some teachers that I didn't get on with and I was just like, well, I'm going to burn the books you gave me. Right? So let, let's talk about that. Here. You that's just, that's you just mentioned point, yeah. that. It's catharsis because it's a mental ending to your purported suffering. Yes, but however, in this case, I can't relate to supposedly their suffering because of me or any Muslim choosing to recognize and read a book. Well, this is what I, I see. I don't, I don't see the connection. No, there. absolutely, and quite rightly. I, I, I may be kicked off of air when I say this. Apologies, you might not see me again when I say this. But, but Rahan, when you when you mentioned what you just said, it reminded If you think that the Quran is such a bad book, mm. and if you think that Muslims and Islam is such a threat to civilization and to your way of life and to the world that you have to, and it's a moral position that you're taking, you're becoming a social pariah and a martyr and you don't care because it's the right thing to do and you're going to burn the Quran. If that's your view... If you think that we're so bad, you would be in much bigger of trouble. Like you said, there's two billion people. There's either two billion people that are your adversaries, and then you know we're just in a huge problem mm. globally. Or why are you one of my best neighbors? Or why are you not a threat to me? Or why can I hold a conversation with you? Why is there this disparity? Where is my fear coming from? Maybe you aren't such a threat. But yeah, exactly. It comes from naturally as human beings, we are afraid of the unknown, right? I think that's a given, right? And that depends in different elements of life. But it's a case of some people embrace that difference, yeah. right? And I'll give you an example. I was watching comedy sketch, right? Okay, fine. So name it, name it, name it. I can't, I can't remember okay. his name, but he was. Uh, but yeah, he, this he, this was a comedian. He had he had come to the UK from from Africa, from an African country, and he was just talking about why why are people afraid when people of, of other nationalities come? He's like, the way I see it is, there's going to be a new takeaway, and I get to try some new food or. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps I can learn new words and a new language, right? It's, in, it's all about the opportunity, yeah. but you have to you have to be willing to embrace the opportunity. Right? I, I mean, that's a nice way to put it. When you first talked about the fear of the owner, I didn't buy it. I'm like, cut, cut the rubbish. You know, you, you, globalization has been happening since the 90s. You you know, there's no there's no concept of unknown. As Muslims, I'm manifestly expressing my Muslim identity. You know, in various ways. You know, I'm not going to hide that from you. There's nothing unknown about it. Go to our mosque, it's an open door policy. Go to our open days and you're going to learn more about Islam in three minutes than you ever would want to, mm-hmm. right? It's like, there's nothing unknown about it. It's, you've chosen this position of made-up victimization. I don't know what you're a victim of in your idea. And you, for whatever reason, you think that this is a solution. Right, exactly. Is if we if we take it in the context of something people might be familiar with, right? Obviously, in this country, at work, people's idea of socialising is typically going out and, and drinking after the work day, right? Mm. And obviously, the three of us, we, we, we obviously have our jobs um, throughout the week. But I'm sure you guys are the same as me in that your colleagues all know that this is not something we take part in, right? If... As in, in my case, as in they know that I'm going to go take some time out in the in the afternoon to, to offer my my afternoon prayers. They know that when they go out drinking, if if I if I were to sort of stay for even a little bit, it would be I literally will have a glass of water or something, and that's yeah. it. I'm just like, that's not me. And I think in many cases, some people are a little bit weirded out, like why why won't you join us? And this is our culture, and why won't you take part in it? But actually, standing firm and saying no, these are my beliefs, and this is what I stand for. Some people don't get it, but ultimately, I do feel you are more respected by more people more of the time. This is this is a good point as well. Are you are you are you really? You, it's not often. It's not the case that they're scared of uh, your culture taking over. It's more that why are you not following mine? 
Uh, and I think, we, like you mentioned, we do see that our workplaces, uh, even education, our peers, people around us who expect us to follow this way of life that they are living. You're right, because when you're then practicing your own culture and not their culture, and that's a generational thing, then, then there's this fear of like being wiped out or being erased, as it were. But that, again, to me, it's like, where where is that fear, fear seated? Because... The issue should be if your culture is exclusionary and you're actually excluding people or if your culture relies on certain aspects which other people don't agree with from the moral fiber of their being, then that's on your culture. Yeah, me not taking part in someone else's that's not cultural, a national social, identity thing it, to not drink. You well, know? to be fair, for the, for the English, I think it has become a little bit, isn't it? But let's not go there. <laughs> I want to stay on the air for a while. Um, but no, you're right. It's a case of people have turned this into an identity for themselves. They've turned it into a sense of culture. Perhaps they are concerned that if I don't take part, like you say, it'll be wiped out. But actually, me not taking part in your cultural activity is not me saying we're going to get rid of it completely. That's just me saying I don't subscribe to these same values and therefore I'm not going to take part, but you go have fun. You yeah. know, again, I don't necessarily condone it, but who am I to stop someone who doesn't subscribe to the same values and same beliefs as me from living a life that they've not subscribed to either? Yeah. But then bring it back to this context. They're not even having this conversation, no. whether it's mentally or at the table. There's no dialogue of a sort. They, yep. you know, th- there's a certain sect of society. You hopefully you expect it to be uneducated and um, you know unexposed to different cultures who are running out onto the streets thinking that it's the most important thing of the world for them to do to inflict and injure and and to sort of diminish other people's view of the world um, by burning Qurans and you know it doesn't have to be Qurans it can be um, religious symbols and artifacts and of anything that's of importance to me it's it doesn't injure me personally. It doesn't injure me neither mentally either. Yes, I have a duty to uphold the character of or, or, and principles of Islam, but I know that that is rooted beyond materiality. Burn that book if it means the best to you. But you know that the Quranic burning for me doesn't symbolize anything other than the burning of that social contract, the yeah. burning of decency and civility that you should afford to other people. That's what it is. Um, I think one thing I was just reflecting on as well was that um, you have a fear of. Uh, Islam or culture taking over what you exi- you know or existing, and uh, we will not deny the fact that uh, Allah or God or the Quran does prescribe every Muslim to preach their faith and to invite other people to join their faith as well. Now it also sets out the guidelines of doing this as well that we can't forcefully get anyone to do this. What we can do is a, as a reminder or preach the message. And if people do want to be guided, they will listen themselves. They will try to act upon this. Or God is truly the one who guides a person. Absolutely. Our our role as Muslims is purely to spread a message and send an invitation, much like you send an invitation to an event. Your job is done once you've handed that inv- invitation, right? It's okay. very much up to the other person if they if they like the sound of what you've what you've told them. If if they're interested, then of course they will come back. But if they're not interested, they're neither compelled to to ask for more or, or, or join your community but nor are you compelled like you say mm. to to force them into to changing their way of life but this is why I don't get the concept of othering people mm. right because ultimately what you're saying is that everyone particularly Muslims we 
consider the message of peace and instilling peace in our lives and our characters and then spreading that peace in the most subtle ways that we can so that you know our community is going to be pillars of peace as well and it brings it back to the conversation of education as well everyone every day wakes up trying to figure out how can i make my today better than yesterday mm. right how can i make my life more peaceful that is the concept of like, like no one wants any discord no one's coming up saying oh how can i wage war against my fellow human beings that, that, war is exhausting war is tiring war is you know it's morally <laughs> wrong it's you know, why, you in, know, in, inviting people the reason why we invite people to islam is literally for the exact opposite reason right, to this. it's right. not because we're not telling you to join Islam because again we want this one culture one religion to no. tr- triumph over everyone else yeah. it's because we truly believe that this is the objective truth which has been set in for the betterment of society and one of those things will be is to the Quran recognises that we've got a pluralist society that we have Jews Christians people of non-faith and Muslims and it gives guidelines to Muslims and also applies to non-Muslims you can use it as well of how to treat those around you regardless that, and it acknowledges the fact that you've been created in tribes yeah that you've been created different from each other, yeah. But it's still, but the law and the teaching and the way it's been set out is put in a way. Despite the differences amongst you, you are the same people. You are united. Yeah. In There's always well. this balance and dance between Puritanism versus pluralism, and mm. unfortunately, some people just don't get it. Yeah, as in, it's I I don't understand where this sort of like you talk about this otherment of others comes from, right? As in a very good friend of mine when I was at university was an Orthodox Jew. Now, my, my university had at least 50% Muslim population there. It was it was in a part of London where a lot of people associated with, with sort of uh, other Muslim groups had, had easy access and, and they would apply and, and study there also. Now, you could imagine a lot of things got quite political, obviously, us, me being an ethnic Muslim, my friend being, being a Jewish man, um, there was obviously a lot of, uh, hey man, what are you doing, right? But I'm like, actually, no, he's my friend because he's a good person, right? And we, we share a lot of things in common. And actually, if you just spent five minutes talking to people around you, there are a lot of people that you, on face value, think, well, I don't want to be their friend. But actually, they could be they could be your best friend. Yeah. But mm. it's just this thing of people not willing to go out from the people that they know and the people that they trust. Now that, in a day-to-day level if we talk about the primary school playground i think everyone's experienced this kids almost always naturally seem to group themselves out by color right i don't know i i always noticed this i i grew up outside of london so things were a bit different perhaps yeah there. it depends yeah but where i grew up as in typically the white children generally it wasn't a case of these were exclusive groups people would sometimes go in and out of different groups but generally the white children and then you'd have perhaps the black children and then perhaps like the Asian children right Mm. Um, and I saw this again in secondary school which was in London but again although we had we had some cultural sort of mixing but generally we had our little groups there I think it's only natural that people feel comfortable with people that that look like them that talk like them that have similar upbringing similar similar cultural backgrounds yeah but I, I think one thing we I, I can I can confirm and personally speak of as well is that compared to let's say our parent generation I I did not struggle as much in uh, um, with my identity in terms of um, I'm obviously part of two cultures, but I do not feel at the moment that I'm not able to confirm conform to one of them. Um, I'm more on one side compared to the other. Obviously, at home, the one you do, whatever you do at home is going to be more heavy. But when I'm outside in society, when I'm with my workmates or when I'm with my friends, that I don't find it's an never issue. in conflict. With it's me. never in conflict. I never feel like they're, they're speaking about something or they're acting in a way where 
um, I can't be, I can't. But, but the, and it's become very easy to not come under peer pressure either. Yeah. I mean, what what we're touching on is that that concept of identity and whether you know, like you said, you know, you identify yourself in a certain way and then you feel comfortable around certain people, but then do you feel threatened when others are practicing that identity? That's the no, thing. No, as in that's 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 a great point because mm. just like you mentioned, Rahan, yes, when I when I'm with my friends, when I'm with my my work colleagues or whoever it might be, yes, they know me as Noshe Noshe is an MD Muslim and blah mm. blah blah, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of my identity, but. At work, Noshe also they they also know me as Noshe is my colleague who works on on my team or on on the team that I work closely with or whatever, right? And so I don't think your identity has to be completely exclusive to how people recognise you. As in, you can have many many elements in ways people relate to each other, right? So we've got you, like you've rightly mentioned at home, you've got one persona. You are the son, the brother, whatever, right? at work you're the colleague to your friends you're your friend and so on right and it's possible to have all of that without compromising or letting go of your values your beliefs but equally i don't feel threatened if someone has a different religion i don't feel threatened if someone has no religion i don't feel threatened if someone wants to go and do something that i wouldn't do like like i mentioned colleagues at work obviously they go out for, for their socializing events not my cup of tea but that's okay they don't subscribe to the same values and the same ways of life that I do. I think that concept of fear, anxiety, is that inferiority, like you you have this fear of either being dominated or um, erased or whatever else, that's an inferiority complex. That's an issue then with the strength of your identity, I think, where you feel you're not comfortable in your own skin, you're not comfortable in your own principles, whatever they might be. And I, I, I still can't try and rationalise it. I, to me, it is just ultimately childish no, um, that's outbreaks. A, yeah, you're right about the inferiority complex point. Where, um, and, I, and the reason I did emphasise the fact that I don't struggle to conform to society is that majority of people do recognise this. And I'm saying people who are other faith or other cultures than me. And the people, and I'm bringing it back to the topic, the people who are doing these acts of ground burning and publicly um, insulting, in a sense, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or the Quran or Islam or other faiths, are a minority. Um, it's just the fact that they are being voiced um, in a way where they are getting out to the society very easily. Um, so that's not. But even generally, with the masses, I'd say is a lot of times we're at work or at other places, people do not even want to talk about faith. And being as an Ahmadi Muslims, this is something we always want to talk about, of <laughs> course. So we'll try bring it in here or there. Be like, um, oh, I did this at the mosque yesterday, or oh, that's interesting. My faith says this about that. And you see this perception about people where either they'll be interested, they'll ask questions, or it make them slightly uneasy because they automatically start assuming that you're here to, um, to preach. I was going to say, I think it tends, unfortunately, towards the latter because there is this concept now, okay, now we have these issues of clash of civilizations and globalization and we all have to appreciate each other, should we? And then the, the default action is to sanitize. Let's just no one talk about their faith. We're all, you know, we're all here. It doesn't matter whether you're from X, Y, Z background. Let's just be. And I think that's actually almost worse because you're almost incriminating my identity. You're also feeding a bad habit at that point, right? If this bad habit is that we don't talk about other people's religions because we're afraid of it. Well, if we continue to not talk about people's backgrounds, their beliefs, then how exactly are we going to see that actually we're more alike than we want to to realize we are right? you know also taking the position of not talking about belief is still a position of belief because it's position of Non-belief. either disbelief or yeah. a belief you know yeah. like absent of belief yeah so exactly it's a case of maintaining the status quo and it's not a case of we're here to rock the boat or 
like you say, oh, we're here to make everyone an MD Muslim. No, that's not the case, right? But I've had these conversations with my colleagues. They're interested. Um, but I think there's a lot of elements that it these conversations... And again, it will vary from from person to person and the people you deal with some obviously are more intrigued uh, than others right my personal experience has been uh, when, when I told colleagues no I don't drink or I'm going to take these 15-20 minutes to go out and pray or whatever it is rather than oh, why are you doing that they're actually intrigued why not and yeah. one of them came up to me and he, he even said to me you know man I really really respect the fact that you take a stand for your belief that you don't drink and you're not getting involved with this and he's like I I think there's a lot of us who a lot of those people aren't going to say it, but we do deeply respect it because yeah. we know it's not easy. This whole cultural thing of, oh, if everyone's going to do one thing and someone says, no, I'm not going to do that. In obviously in the workplace setting, it can be, it can be almost restrictive in yeah. the things like career progression and getting those opportunities Definitely. and conversations. Yeah. And like, well, well, it reminds me of a, another point in the Quran as well, which I reflect always that, uh, we've mentioning we've mentioned white people to Islam, but the Quran specifically says that in white people with good speech. Now within this, I believe there's two contexts being discussed. It's not just mean talk to people nicely; it also means explain to them correctly, and make it easy for them to understand the teachings mm. of Islam. But also don't enforce it on other people, um, and use the right opportunities to address that topic as well. If you're a person who's constantly every, within every discussion bringing that up, uh, Islam this, about my faith sisters, yeah. my thing says that, it's obviously not going to work. You're only going to make a person turn away from you and be like, okay, I don't even want anything to do with this person. Yeah. It's really annoying. I think we, we've probably all got a friend, even ourselves, like Muslim friends, who the only thing they talk about is religion. And they don't, exist, get, yes. don't, 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 don't get me wrong. that These are very good things to be talking about. But yeah. like you say, there's a time, a place, and there's not everyone is at the same level. Not everyone wants to be discussing certain things all of the time right if if for example i start talking to you about random weird mechanisms and all sorts of engineering cool things that i i get fascinated by you two will probably both switch off within five mm, minutes right? zoned out. yeah exactly right <laughs> and so it's a case of you need to sort of almost read the other person and see what what's yes. their interest like and actually make a conversation about them as in i was speaking to um, I was speaking to an imam who, who obviously as part of his job is outreach and, and spreading the word of, of Islam um, to, to, to the local population and he said to me that one of the best things he, he found out in his work was never make the conversation about me, never make the conversation about Islam, it's always about the other person, what are they interested in and he's like if, if you show interest in other people and what they're doing, if what you if what we have to share with the world is as beautiful as we know it is, then hopefully the other person will see it, be interested, and then they'll ask us more about it, right? Mm. And it's a case of these things, we don't we don't sort of force anyone to change their religion or, or join us. It's a case of the onus is on, on us to A, live it to the best of our abilities, but also to showcase it to, to the full extent of its beauty. Yeah, Live it. I think, exactly. I think that's, the, that's the most important point there. Yeah, I, I was th a couple of points on that moral quality of like, you know, should you always be proselytizing, always be preaching and, you know, talking about Islam? And the promised Messiah always said this the best. I think writing it in the philosophy and teachings of Islam was absolutely extraordinary when I first read it, is that moral qualities are only moral in their context of time and place. 
So you can only, you know, you can't be considered courageous when you haven't had the opportunity to be courageous. And likewise, you can't be considered to be good if you're continuously practicing or preaching for Islam needlessly unnecessarily. And let's just be real here for a second. I'm going to my nine to five not to actually preach to you. I'm going there for a relatively good time whilst primarily just trying to pay my bills and get by. Right. And that's really the common understanding there. There's then this other concept that you touched on, Noshi, about you know, you very openly say that I like to read my namaz, my prayers, and I take a stance on, you know, not socializing needlessly in, you know, um, situations where I don't feel comfortable. And I think that's great. And I also think that it speaks to this sort of secular coding of language that used to take over, where it's like, oh, I'm just going to take a mindful practice for 15 minutes, or I'm a teetotal. It's the same thing. I don't drink. I, I just need 15 minutes out of my day to, you know, either talk to God or just relax for a bit. Right? We, there's this concept in the secular world where, you, again, it's that sanitization of spiritual practices. But we always tend to them in either either way. You, you need a break. You need to be able to, you know, you recognize that you're better physically, mentally, spiritually more so when you're sober. So you tend to them either way. So why shy away from what your truth or the origin of that practice is, which for you is your spirituality rather than just saying, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could have, if I wanted to, just told them I'll be back 15 minutes later or and, and not tell them why I'm going, right? But I think it's quite important for them to know that this is a, a core part of my identity, a core part of what I believe in 100%. and therefore practice. And it just also means that obviously... So some of them might might think, oh no, he's a very strictly practicing Muslim, I try my best. But the thing is, right, it's about saying, no, we can still be friends, we can still be colleagues, right? But these are the things that I adhere to and these are the things that are important to me, right? And so these are my golden principles that, that I'm not willing to to let go of for any one person, any one job or any other thing out there in a worldly sense. Yeah, I this made me think about... Um, when I was in year two, how old are you in year two? Like six years old or something, something like, like that? that yeah. And I sort of loved it. I mean, I was perhaps also terrified of it. When my teacher would ask every year for, for you know, for the, the key stage one, what it, oh my God, I'm like losing my primary school knowledge here. Like that key stage one, like when you're in year one, year two, year three, it's like, oh, Hamad, do you want to come in and talk about Islam? Because for hmm. whatever reason, the curriculum has now shifted to religions and it'll be nice. And I'd be a bit fearful because throughout my life I would see them as two distinct spheres right there's my Muslim identity and then there's my school identity or my academic identity and I never liked to have them overlap oh but god it, this is a whole long topic itself no I, I, and I used to quiver and be like and then you know as soon as you like do the namaz and the prayer mat and you roll it out and like, Ooh, this is colourful and this is great and then you, do, you know you perform the prayer and you do it in actions but it was that genuine curiosity and appreciation an invitation to be able to just say it's in it, you know we would love to just understand more and i think that was so beautiful reflecting on that now um and 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 i think there's something really precious there to say i just want to learn more or i, I you know it's extra I, I appreciate just like your colleague said i value the stance that you take uh, and um yeah it doesn't take anything from you yeah right. i think obviously we have to be grateful where it's due and the fact that this is discussions are more open about this there are more opportunities for people of faith to practice it at their workplaces and their schools is obviously amazing and it's good to see that and like you mentioned I totally agree it was the point where uh, 
you'd have a fear of even asking a teacher, can I go pray? Yeah. yeah. What are they going to ask? What are they going to think of or me? Or that Harry Potter thing where you're just like running towards the cupboards because this is not, you can, yeah. that's the only place that you could pray. I, I do think, obviously, if we frame it in a way that we obviously try and find the similarities between people, you'd be surprised how many people have so many similarities between them. Um, I think I mentioned it probably in the past once, but I, I had a chat with a, a Christian colleague who obviously, and we had a great chat. We just sort of... Um, yeah, we were in the office and, and we were just talking about, obviously, the similarities between their religion and mine. And, of course, the, there are many differences, too, in obviously, in our day-to-day practices. But if we actually start looking at it fundamentally and culturally and sort of what are the uh, actual beliefs, there's there's far more overlap than either of us would actually perhaps yeah. have realised before that conversation happened. I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm in the religion that I'm born into, in the background that I'm born into, where we don't shirk away from these conversations, where we're encouraged to, you know, have this open dialogue. Again, it reminds me, year two, I guess it was a pivotal year for me, where we went to the local church and I realised upon reflecting on it that actually all the um, Muslim kids in my class weren't there that day. And that was because their parents hadn't given them permission to go to church. I was there. I was very gunk. I was very excited. It was like, I can't even measure to you the excitement that I had. Um, and it was absolutely extraordinary. Now, granted, I did get baptized there because that was regardless of that. But that's the Wait, point. So you're telling me you're a <laughs> I'm a baptized <laughs> Muslim, as it were. Uh, no, I was just the tallest kid in the class, and they just wanted to demonstrate. Hopefully, it means nothing. Um, <laughs> but it it was it was still be, and you didn't have to go far as to you know submit to like a baptism or whatever else it was. It was just symbolic. Um, but it, I, I, there is that beauty of plurality and just inviting and sharing religious practices one another. Yeah. I think one thing I do want to give um, Denmark uh, credit on as well and the uh, foreign minister we obviously can discuss here uh, on a talk our personal opinions or what his intentions might be or what the country's intentions might be as a, um, in terms of policies yeah. and their diplomatic relations etc but he did mention that uh, the on, um, sorry who's he? It's uh, his name is Lars Rasmussen, and he's the foreign minister right. of Denmark. And obviously, um, Nasha read out some of his statements that he made earlier as well in regards to why this is taking place. But he mentions that in regards to um, legally preventing burnings of the Quran or other religious scriptures, he says that it only serves the purpose of creating division in a world that actually needs unity. So obviously, statements like that we completely agree with, yeah. and we confirm with as well. And uh, he specifically mentioned other scriptures as well, which we I don't know if we've touched on just now, but uh, we are totally against as well because we obviously hold all the other scriptures in high regard as well. Yeah. Even if it's a scripture that we don't personally believe in or a book that we don't believe in, if we believe that that is um, significant to a certain group of people, that they hold it in high regard, then we believe it's abs- absolutely impermissible to disrespect or burn that book yes if you might disagree with it we can criticise or ask questions about it mm. and that's where it stops at yeah. it doesn't go more than that and I think the Muslim um, I don't know do you guys remember when Rasmus the guy in Denmark burned the Quran and then the Muslim got permission tried to get permission to burn the Bible and he turned oh, up on the street yeah. with the Bible he mentioned that I, I, I was just pretending I wasn't actually going to burn the Bible because we respect the Bible and this is a message to all those out there that you don't have to go out and burn them you can just discuss them and Exactly. And it just comes down to a, a level of respect between people, right? Um, like, like like you say, we, we are now 8 billion people on on, on this earth. The right? number keeps going up, not sure. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's probably going to be 9 million <laughs> by, by midday, the way people are going. But yeah, there, there's 8 billion people on earth. We We all have a different story, a different set of beliefs. But there are many, many people who are like us and many people who have a different way of life. But I 
I doubt we're likely to find people with such a different outlook on life that you can't find even a single thing to agree upon. And surely that's the beginning of, of building bridges between communities and peoples. Again, that reminds me of part of the Quran where it says, um, find common ground between you uh, Christians and the Jews and yourself. Because obviously there are a lot of similarities in the teachings, but also in the stories of the prophets of the past. You all believe in Moses. Look at the stories of Moses mentioned in your scriptures and find the commonality between those, um, unite upon those things. So I think every good thing that society has kind of uh, has applied in this day and age has its basis in the Quran as well. And I know in the previous story, we did not talk about the Islamic kind of teachings or the concept because we thought it might not be that related. But Islam does have some sort of idea or interpretation or uh, kind of a teaching to give for every case as well. And one of the things we know in this case is that um, the the... the Hazur, or the uh, head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazim is a Masroor Ahmed, he puts a lot of emphasis on the medical profession. Mm. For every, for every MD knows, MD Muslim from a young childhood, that Hazur really encourages people to go down that pathway because he believes that the, a doctor, a nurse, or a medical professional, or healthcare professional, is someone who can really, really benefit people, those around them. Yeah. And that is the purpose of why we're encouraged to go down this field. And Hazur also instructs, um, gives a instructions to Ahmadi Muslim doctors in regards to what they should specialise in. He sends them to poorer countries, to underdeveloped countries to help out people um, uh, after they specialised here in the West, which is a very challenging thing to do as a doctor who's worked here. But uh, the point, again, is for the benefit and the betterment of those around you. And as the Quran also states in regards to the teaching that murder specifically is that those who kill one person, if you've murdered one person, it's as if you've murdered the whole of mankind. Um, and uh, likewise as well, those who saved one life, it's as if they've saved the whole of mankind. This is the emphasis that Allah puts upon it and why our Khalifa encourages people to go down these fields as well. So it kind of links into why, um, how Islam has a teaching in regards to every single thing. We're here for 70 years max, right? Like your, your, your existence on this life is a wink. You're not going to find me indulging myself in acts of hatred or th- it's just I don't have time for that, man. Like, in like, this economy, come on, yeah, let's we, just let's just understand that we're all struggling. We all have our struggles. We all also have our beauties in our, our practices, in our outlooks of life. And that's where you're going to find the truth. And that's where you'll find me. I'll be your neighbor in love and passion and compassion and for one another. But it's it's yeah, let's be real. And you, you won't find the hatred in me for that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Life is far too short to spend it being full of hate uh, and animosity for those around us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think mean, this is uh, the message that was echoed by Hazim Zabsur Rahman, the Jalsa as well, mm. that happened three weeks ago now. So quick. Yeah, Jalsa Salana, you could happen three weeks. And uh, if you listen back to his addresses from the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you would hear the need for peace, tolerance, unity emphasised in every single speech of his. And both his speeches are obviously mainly directed at Ahmadis, but there's teachings in it for everyone else as well. And next week as well, we've got the Joseph Slana Germany taking place. And this is the first time His Holiness will be travelling to Germany uh, for years, mm-hmm. considering that this was an annual trip he made. Um, the Germans, I know specifically, all my relatives there have been missing him a lot. Yeah. So I believe he's travelling out uh, this weekend one day something like that and he's inaugurating some mosques that have opened there recently and uh, he'll be visiting dignitaries journalists etc um, and also participating in the Jalsa Salana so yeah I'm looking I'm looking forward to that even when you don't get to attend in person there's still that uh, rejuvenation 
of uh, spiritually when uh, you're listening to his address online no. or even his Friday yeah. sermons. Yesterday's Friday sermons was absolutely amazing where he spoke about a whole uh, 40, 45 minutes on the need to seek repentance and the benefit that you, you, you take from this. So would encourage all the listeners to go listen to yesterday's Friday sermon as well if they Absolutely. can. Uh, and just on that small point where, you know, Hazor, His Holiness, is going to be inaugurating new mosques. Again, you could think, is that a symbol of fear and regret and uh, animosity towards other people in German society, whatever? I can say trying to be as unbiased as I can possibly be. For me, that's like a symbol or a pillar for like spiritual discipline. I'm like, oh, actually, these people have an outlook in life and they're determined to be better agents and better angels in their society, right? And so that's something that I would welcome. I, you know, I that and that's the thing where you have to find where, where we're touching on like commonality and opportunities of seeking truth of different pe- aspects of people's different society. If you're Muslim or if you're practicing Muslim, to me, you're spiritually disciplined. You you know what you yeah. want to do in your life. You know why you're here. You, you're bound by a moral code of conduct and you're going to care for one another, um, Muslim or non-Muslim. And that, again, I think is a source. It should be a source of peace and comfort rather than um, fear, regret and anxiety. Yeah. And I think recent, the most recent inauguration that we had in the UK of a mosque was the Betul Salam Mosque um, in Scunthorpe. Mm. And Betul Salam obviously itself means house of peace. Yeah. And His Holiness in his address at the inauguration mentioned that the reason this mosque, everywhere mosque opens or the community opens a mosque is a source of peace and a beacon of peace. And for that reason, the Ahmadi Muslims in the area should practice it and create it as such as well, where it's not only a source of peace for the people of the Ahmadi Muslim community, but those of the local wider community as well, that they can come here and attain that. They're never empty words. When Hazor speaks of this and, you know, you reiterate it, it almost, you know, you might be lulled into a sense of like, oh, the, this is happening again or this is the same. It's not, it's, it impresses upon the importance of it because it intersects to so many issues, whether it's Denmark or then um, having anxieties and fears and having mobs and you know, whether they think that they should retaliate or whether they think that they should put legal infrastructures around, you know, regardless of that. But it's the importance of the topic, I think. Yeah, and absolutely. I think this was a really, really interesting discussion we just had as well. And uh, we're coming to the end of the show now. So we've been able to talk about some of the topics we wanted because uh, it's an ongoing discussion. We could talk about this for days and days, as we've been doing in the past as well. But I'd like to thank all the listeners for tuning in and listening in. Uh, we discussed a couple of topics today in regards to the Quran burning, uh, Lucy Letby, the nurse killer, and also the results that have come out recently as well for GCSE and A-levels. Um, we hope to catch you again next time on Saturday Morning Live. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.